You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vieta. And my name is Alice Koenig. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guests today are Dr. Laura Mills, who works with us at St. Andrews in the School of International Relations, and Dr. Ken Mavor, who is based just across town in the School of Psychology. They have been helping us to take the uh, Visualizing War research project in some exciting new directions. So we thought they would make great guests for our first podcast to help us explain what our project is trying to do. Before we introduce them, we just want to say a few words about the project itself, just to set the scene for those of you who are new to it. As some listeners may know, when Nicholas and I set up the Visualizing War project, we focused to start with on ancient war stories, looking particularly at connections between representations of war in all sorts of different media. So poetry, sculpture, official records, ancient history writing and so on, and texts from the 9th century BC to the 6th century AD. And that really helped us um, start to understand how war stories work and also how they interact with each other across space and time. Um, how, for example, representations of warriors in ancient epic poetry have influenced later artistic or historical depictions of military commanders. And building on that, we've been looking at what impact these recurring storytelling patterns have on how people think and feel and behave in real life. Representations of war, of course, reflect reality up to a point, but they can also help to shape it and to shape our behaviour and our decision making by generating really powerful ideologies, for example, about heroism or sacrifice or masculinity or patriotism and so on. So just to take an example, if images of a lone general taking bold and brave decisions without advice from anyone else keep cropping up in poetry and drama and history and art, they also very slowly find their way into, let's say, military training manuals and then into military practice, as well as into popular or civilian ideas about what makes a good leader. That's at least what we began noticing about the ancient material that we were looking at. And as, as Alice was explaining then, what our work on the ancient material really did was push us beyond antiquity quite soon. And now we are interested in understanding how uh, ideas about heroism, sacrifice, patriotism, and so on, that were generated by ancient war stories, developed beyond antiquity in uh, later cultures and uh, at later times, and uh, how they have influenced the ways in which people in later centuries and different parts of the world have understood and imagined and uh, conducted war. So to help us expand our study and take a really long view of how war stories work and what they do to us, we've started involving researchers in all sorts of different disciplines. So in art history, film studies, medieval and modern history. And we've also begun working with experts in international relations and global politics and in psychology, because the ways in which they study conflict, behavior and identity have a huge amount to offer our work. And that brings us right to our guests today, Laura and Ken. Uh, Laura, perhaps you would like to kick us off by saying a few words about your research. Uh, what do you work on and why? Thanks, Alice and Nicholas. Um, so as you said, I am a researcher in international relations and, and I'm therefore fascinated by how everyday life and culture co-constitute global politics. So they shape, mould, leave their mark on and are located within one another in really messy and complex ways. And this has led me to explore 
fascinating questions around aesthetics, identity, everyday practice and power, first on, on cultural diplomacy and second on war militarism and security. This has led to some really interesting work on the Invictus Games and also US military and veteran artwork uh, in the context of recent controversial wars. And then also more recently, my work has been interested in and, and indeed driven by creative engagements with international relations. And this is both in terms of my teaching, so the pedagogy of that, and also the research that I engage with and in. And I'm encouraging my students to produce creative work in some of the modules that I do here at St Andrews. And I've also begun to engage in, in poetry, narrative, photography and, and visuality in these myriad ways, uh, resulting in some really intriguing, discomforting at times, yet rewarding work. Um, and then finally, I'm also the founding co-editor of Openings, which is a creative intervention section in the journal Contemporary Voices, St. Andrew's Journal of International Relations. So that's a journal which is actually based here in St. Andrew's also. That's really fascinating, Laura. It's really interesting to see this sort of the intersection between academic study and creative work. And as you said, the intersection between everyday culture and global politics. In particular, we're interested in the way in which that shapes war, attitudes to conflict, the conduct of war, decisions to go to war and people's responses to it. Ken, do you want to come in here now and explain your research to our listeners? Uh, well, I'm a social psychologist uh, with particular interests in the nature of self, both personal selves and collective selves, um, and how these work together. Um, and I've explored this notion of the self, the personal and the collective self in a range of settings, including uh, collective action, uh, religiosity, political ideology, and in education. So the, the concepts themselves are quite abstract, but they, they lend themselves to being explored in a number of different settings. And so I'm very much uh, excited and looking forward to also exploring these in the context of, of these war narratives. And to make, to make it perhaps a little bit less abstract, I think these, this idea of, of the personal and the collective self as both being very important to who we are plays out rather well in a number of war narratives, I think. So, for example, although Australian by birth, I spent some years as a child growing up in the US and was greatly impacted by American war stories. Uh, as a young, impressionable person. Um, and I viv vividly recall the statue of the flag raising on Iwo Jima and uh, being impacted by the emotion of that statue uh, and reading a history of all the Medal of Honor winners from the Iwo Jima campaign. And one of the things that really struck me, actually, and that's carried with me, was the heroism stories of soldiers in foxholes who would throw themselves on a grenade to shield their comrades from the impact of that. And, and that sort of story, I think, speaks very much to this notion of individual heroism, but it also speaks very much to, to the way they see the collective, so how they saw themselves as part of a unit and, and showing that heroic sacrifice in the context of, uh, of saving their, their comrades. On the other hand, growing up in Australia as a sort of small Commonwealth nation without the, the sort of impact and power of the US, Australians tend to think in quite different ways about war narratives. So for example, a really crucial one for Australia is the disastrous Dardanelles campaign in Turkey in World War I, uh, which forms really a very deep part of the national psyche for Australians uh, that we remember each year on Anzac Day. And although those narratives also include many examples of great sacrifice, individual sacrifice, 
But what they also include is are interesting examples of collective ingenuity that allowed more soldiers to escape, for example, in the ultimate withdrawal. So although the Australian force was small, it was small but ingenious uh, and showed that kind of collective quality that enabled them to save each other in that context. So I think it's interesting that as, as a smaller nation, Australia sees its contributions not as one of massive influence, perhaps in swaying the ultimate outcome, but as providing crucial collective heroism in specific battles. And then, of course, also growing up with, with classic stories, I think one of the strongest narratives of collective identity is, of course, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, where, where there's very much a collective sense that of, of the collective sacrifice, the collective determination, the, the, you know, the, the, the individual players in the story are really just part of the collective sacrifice. And, and that, uh, that echoes quite a lot, of course, through other, so that 300 Spartan story itself becomes an element of storytelling of, of various other contemporary stories and so forth. That's really fascinating, Ken. And you've talked a little bit about how stories themselves perpetuate ideas about either individual contributions or collective contributions. One of the things that the project is interested in is also how that impacts on audience readers and whether we respond to stories as individuals or as collectives. Exactly. And and uh, so, uh, again, one of the things I was really I'm really struck by is in that sense of of audience. I was I was reflecting on stories which which kind of make it clear who are the aggressors and who are the freedom fighters, etc. Uh, and so I was reflecting on uh, Eisenstein's movie, Alexander Nevsky, actually, from 1938, which uh, I find a particularly interesting story because it's a story about a local Russian prince rallying the local peasants to hold back the Teutonic Knights in the 13th century. So very much a historical narrative, but its context in 1938 very much uh, focused on on the local times um, and the Teutonic Knights in that story exhibiting great brutality to the locals. The message was very clear in 1938, the Germans are coming. And I've, what's what's really fascinating about that story is it has a sort of almost a mythical prescience to it as well, uh, because the Teutonic Knights are ultimately defeated in a battle on the ice where the heavy armour ultimately drags them down a message of hope perhaps that the motherland herself will ultimately swallow up the invaders. So there's a very strong, not only the heroism of Nevsky in the story, but very much motherland is is actually the collective hero ultimately uh, in that story. Um, and I guess just one, one uh, thing I think find interesting in the in current times is that um, one of the things we also see uh, perhaps in these stories is where the the storyteller starts to move away from a clear good and and bad uh, protagonist, but actually also tells stories of the sort of ultimate humanness of conflict and the humanness of war, where in fact all of the all of the elements are equally suffering, and so where where it's actually war itself that is a kind of character in the in the story, and so I think there's a move towards that kind of narrative as well. One of the really interesting things that sort of come out of this, uh, Kenneth Laura, for me is that I can immediately also see that your 
research interests also overlap in quite in quite a significant way in this sort of emphasis on uh, the visual on the one uh, the one hand and also lead to sort of very different stories that are told about conflict and um, I'm just wondering Laura um, do you want to talk a bit more about your project and the sort of the role of creativity in creating different stories about war and conflict Yeah, I think international relations is increasingly engaging with more creative or alternative forms. And I use alternative very loosely there because I think it can somehow position it as other or outside of or or marginalized. And actually, we are seeing much more work being done in that way. And of course, that's drawing from other disciplines and other practice right this is about creative practice so we have so much to learn from practitioners themselves and and I think that's what's so exciting about this project as well and how this comes into sort of conversation with my own work is that this creativity potentially enables us to to access something which we we cannot access with more traditional forms of scholarship and that we lose something by not doing that. We lose something critical by not doing that in terms of our thinking and in terms of our interrogation of these really important questions and areas of of research. And what has been so exciting for me is is to not only see how how, how the the scholarship is evolving, but how students are, are so excited to engage in this work. And the kind of work that they are producing and have since got published, for example, or have exhibited elsewhere has been has been really fascinating. I think as well, there's also something to be said about us as scholars also working with our students and that that is a partnership and a collaboration, too. And that creativity enables you an avenue to do that in ways that were perhaps not possible as well. And I was really lucky to be involved in a project called Threads, War and Conflict as part of the organizing committee, which was here um, in St. Andrews several years ago. Threads, War and Conflict was essentially a exhibition of conflict textiles. Um, So global textiles from around the world, which explored a variety of themes related to issues certainly that we deal with in the School of International Relations, but most certainly beyond. Um, in terms of migration and displacement, conflict, violence, drone warfare, resistance, and the ethics of warfare. And we also had an associated events program around that. And I know Alice was involved in some of those events also. Uh, what, What was so fascinating about part of this was that we actually worked with students to produce a conflict textile. And that conflict textile will now join the, the archive, the actual larger collection of conflict textiles, which is based on Cain um, conflict um, archive on the internet at the University of Ulster. So that's a really exciting venture for us. I'm actually waiting today <laughs> to receive the conflict textile delivered um, from, from Ireland after being officially made into its incarnation as it is. I don't want to say too much, but I'm excited to be launching this with Lydia Cole, who was also the member of staff that I worked with, with these students to produce this in tandem with their local textile artist, uh, Sheila Mortlock as well. Yes, I remember Lydia coming to talk to one of our early events and when we started the Visualising War project. And I also remember so strongly the the emotional power of those textiles. And it is really, really interesting dealing with so many different art forms and thinking about the power that music relative to 
text or art or just seeing the stitched work, stitched protest narrative of, um, of a sort of a bereaved mother, for example, the power of that uh, to connect with with viewers, with people attending a museum exhibition and so on is amazing. And Laura, I really take your point about creativity being an opportunity to explore aspects of war storytelling, which perhaps traditional forms of scholarship can't do. The Visualising War Project is working closely at the moment with a professional theatre company, NMT Automatics, and it's been so exciting to work alongside them as they've been developing a play, Tempest Fugit, Troy and Us, which weaves together an ancient war story and a modern one, and the things that they are surfacing by practice, by, by putting this play together, by exploring how they want to visualise war or how they want their audience to understand the complexities of being a military partner, for example, all of that has been so illuminating. And, and again, one of those opportunities which traditional scholarship wouldn't, I don't think, have taken us so far with. Yes, Alice, I was just thinking about how actually this can be, in terms of what you were saying about this being so emotional and effective, that the, the immediacy and the potency that these creative forms can tap into is, is so powerful and is so forceful. And I think there's something that we, we must explore further around how this can be a much more direct, evocative, potent form for us to, to connect and to gauge with various audiences. And I think for, for us as researchers, scholars, teachers who are primarily concerned with ancient narratives, um, one of the really exciting aspects of the project is that we get a bit of insight into war stories uh, not produced by the, the same kind of people that sort of famously and typically produce those stories in antiquity, which is usually it's an elite, uh, elite group of people, of storytellers. And here we have an opportunity to actually look at stories that are produced by all sorts of people in all sorts of different media. So for us, that's a real, that's a fantastic opportunity to sort of also widen our horizon of understanding how these stories work and, uh, and how experiences of warfare and conflict sort of are translated into into different kinds of narrative. I'm also wondering, uh, Ken, maybe circling back to you, because obviously there's a very strong overlap here between the narratives, visual or otherwise, that are being produced uh, and then received by others, by us, and you know, prompt all these thought processes. But also, obviously, there's a, there's a link here with the development of the self and kind of working through experiences and how creating these narratives then kind of feeds back into each of these individual artists and 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 um, people's uh, own development. I'm just wondering, it might be interesting to hear your perspective also on this and to what extent you've been working maybe also with text or images in your own research on understanding how the self works and the development of the self works. Yeah, I mean, I think those um, those ideas of using uh, other forms of uh, other forms of storytelling, other media, and so forth, I think are really a fascinating part of the project. Uh, and and one of the things that kind of attracted me to the project when I was first kind of exposed to some of those things, and and the ways in which those other forms of media are able to kind of tell stories or, or communicate emotion directly in ways that words you know, words can't necessarily uh, achieve in, in the same sense. So uh, I think that's a really terrific kind of aspect of the project. And I also think that, um, as you're saying, I think the fact that there's sort of a contemporary element where we bring the contemporary and the classic together, 
uh, also works in the context of that issue of who writes the stories in the classic context and what's missing, what what perspectives are kind of missing from those stories because by looking at conflict in the in the in the modern context and for looking for stories which in fact might not survive historically, but which but which we have access to in the contemporary, it it perhaps helps uh, historians uh, uh, and classicists to kind of imagine what the other stories might be that surround the classic stories or to connect to the to some aspects of those classic stories that that don't tend to be the ones uh as well known uh, i imagine there are in fact little elements of those things but they're just not as well uh you know known culturally and so forth so so one of the things i really look forward to is being able to to bring out from historians those those extra little details which are not so well known publicly you know, we know the classic stories and and the and and the elements of those that have been repeated, but but we don't necessarily hear the other voices even in the in the classical stories um, that are that are not so well known. So I think bringing the the contemporary and the classical together allows us perhaps to emphasise those other elements of the stories which which wouldn't otherwise be so so well explored. Yes, absolutely. For so many centuries, millennia heroes like Achilles and Odysseus and Hector have dominated our idea of um, what a warrior looks like. Um, and similarly, their, their um, long-suffering wives and mothers have dominated our understanding of what victims of conflict look like. We recently ran a project with a group of theatre, film and documentary makers and an online event. And one of the questions we asked them is what aspects of war do you want to see dramatised more often on stage and screen? And very, very clearly, um, it, it, came, it came across that people want to see more women. They want to see more children, more civilians. The consequences, the aftermath, the lead up, the alternatives that there might have been to conflict um, and to decenter the white hero, not simply the soldier. And that was really fascinating. And in fact, there is some work, um, you know, again, actually on the creative side of things, um, reimagining the classical text for modern audiences. So I'm just thinking immediately of Pat Barker's novel, The Silence of the Girls. It's a harrowing read, but it takes the characters from Homer's Iliad, um, the, the, the women who get passed around as slaves who are, who are taken um, into marriage, forced marriage by victors and so on. And it tells their story. And it breaks their silence effectively. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting. I think there is some momentum towards this already, but absolutely your work is going to help us um, look back through all the centuries of history really and think about the dominant and the marginalized voices in war storytelling. So uh, Laura, this is also a good time to ask you a bit more about your involvement in the in the project. Like Ken, we we roped you in quite early on, and um, you're both now part of, of the Visualizing War Steering Committee. And obviously, one of the things we are quite interested in is uh, um, hearing about how you think your research and the project can sort of fruitfully interact and what, what might come out of this interaction. Yeah, thanks. I think for me, it kind of builds on our, our earlier conversations around the, the Visualizing War project you know, holding so much promise um, in how it brings together such a diverse range of contributors in order for us to then grapple with how war and its visualizations or its visualizing or indeed how it visualizes, um, right? So all of these kind of intricate ways in which these representations work, how all of this comes to shape our understandings of and also conduct of war. 
or also our understandings of visualization or of the visual itself. So then this is a kind of concern with multiple interpretations of these representations and the effects they have in the world. And what I find is that this provokes us to ask really important questions. And these questions could be around, what do these visual stories or representations do? Um, how do they make themselves felt and, and shape um, contemporary potential experiences, understandings and conduct of war or indeed in war? Uh, what social, political, cultural and economic effects do they have for multiple audiences or stakeholders? So that could be academics like ourselves. It could be practitioners, visual practitioners. It could be the military. It could be the public. Um, how do these visual stories or representations then make meaning or sense of the conduct of or in war? And then how are some meanings privileged and made visible while others are marginalized and made invisible? And I know these are conversations that Alice was, was having also. So this project matters and it does matter because of all of these big questions and concerns and the effects they have in the world and indeed the shaping of those worlds. Um, it makes those worlds. So for me, this is what is, is so exciting in terms of my work coming into this as well, is that we're bringing all of these voices together in order for us to learn from one another through this innovative interdisciplinary approach. Um, and how through that approach, we can explore how these visualizations shape and indeed are shaped by our understanding and conduct of war and the very long history, history sorry, and legacies of that. Ken, perhaps you, do you have something to add here as well? As, as Nicola said, we brought both of you in pretty early on in the project um, and it's been very exciting for us to learn from you. Um, what, have, what, what have you got out of these interactions and what are you hoping to get out of them going forward? I think it's inevitably the case that stories about war come into broader political and social narratives. And so, so certainly, uh, I mean, I, along with many other people, share a kind of naive understanding of our own history uh, and of war stories in our history. We, we th these stories are a very important part of our our upbringing within the nation, uh, within various nations that that we've grown up in, and so there there are a kind of shared uh, shared set of stories which we use in lots of different ways. So. Uh, even if our intention isn't isn't to directly talk about the act of war, uh, it might just be how we understand various other nations relative to ours and and historical uh, debts that are owed to various kind of groups or um, or, or how we should conduct um, protest. You know, uh, in an era in which uh, protest is becoming uh, and re reaction to protest is becoming increasingly militarized. You know, there are questions about the way we want to handle, you know, collective protest in, in democracies and so forth. So, so I think it speaks to all of these broad questions um, about our, collect our collective political selves, not just with regard to war. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of fascinating how we use these stories in lots of different ways. Um, and, you know, we can also imagine how those stories actually interestingly misused. So, so in the current kind of context where, where the UK is trying to place itself in a, in a new context, in a, in a new kind of uh, political world, um, there are examples of, of how perhaps historical uh, stories have been misused in, in uh, kind of political context. Um, in ways that have kind of caused embarrassment and, and that sort of thing. And so, so again, it's getting a broader sense of how we as a kind of interdisciplinary team can kind of reflect upon all those things together. 
um, uh, I certainly sometimes feel, even though my historical knowledge is shared with many others as an amateur a kind of member of the society, I think what we often need is also to bring in that kind of expertise where we can we can tease apart the perhaps the subtler parts of the stories which in fact haven't been retold um, and and can bring new insight uh, uh, not just in terms of this the story itself but in terms of the political context perhaps even even reversing the interpretation that some users of the narratives might be wanting to, to bring, that actually a more sophisticated historical analysis might actually bring us to an alternative conclusion to that. And these are all things which, which I'm not in a position to do uh, as a psychologist and where, where I want to kind of draw upon my you know, uh, colleagues in, in history and classics and uh, international relations to, to really improve my own knowledge about, about these kinds of things. On the flip side, I think what coming from psychology allows me to do is to actually see some of these activities in the more abstract as, for example, examples of collective influence, right? So how, how do identities play out in this process of influencing people collectively? So we kind of look at it in, in that sort of more broad frame and see these as examples. And so we can bring insights that we have from that kind of more abstract understanding of these processes and how that plays out in these particular instances. Um, so I, I find both of those elements of the exchange very exciting. Well, I think that's that's one of the um, the most exciting aspects of the of the project as well. Um, and of course, I mean, what, what one of the things I mean, wh why war stories are still so powerful and can can be used, or all kinds of visualization of war and conflict can be used to all for all kinds of different political or social agendas, is that they often work at a very sort of intuitive. Um, effective, immediate way, because we have this sort of repertoire in our heads of certain ideas of of heroism, the um, the meaning of a a potent military force in the country, the way we picture conflicts as good versus bad, and uh, often we, we you know you, you can see that um, the politicians, leaders, but also you know um, other people they're they're drawing on this on this intuitive power of those uh, of those stories and use them for their own you know to, to realize their own uh, goals i think one of the things that this project can hopefully do is also bring this out in the open a little bit and you know how how people are using these uh, inherent intuitive you know, sort of um, forces in those stories and just to see what's problematic about this and how we can rethink those stories or all the, dif the different things you have to leave out in order to make that story work. Absolutely. And I think Ken also made a very important point there about the way in which when we delve deeper into history, we can surface sometimes more truthful, more accurate narratives and explanations of what went on. So in recent Remembrance Day celebrations or commemorations, David Lammy produced a, a, a documentary um, all about the fact that historically Britain has rather whitewashed World War I and World War II. Commonwealth war graves, for example, in Kenya um, mark the graves of all the British soldiers who fell, but there is a mass unmarked grave for all the Kenyan soldiers who who contributed and nearly a million African soldiers um, took part in World War One, and that's something that we don't tell the story of very often. That very neatly brings us back to an, an earlier point we were making about how it's important to try and think about and recover all those voices that are um, left out or silenced or unheard in, in, in the war stories and be 
also mindful of the fact in which these kind of archetypal big paradigmatic war stories from the past like the Iliad like the uh, like the Aeneid uh, some of the medieval war stories still kind of shape the way in which we think about war and conflict um, how they have kind of created these patterns of narrative that make it very easy to just leave out big groups of the story, people who have suffered, people who were engaged in this. And it, this also raises quite interesting questions about how uncovering a form of historical truth also has to do with thinking more diversely about what we are, what we're talking about and what, what we want to, um, what we want to understand better. Absolutely. Talking of diverse voices, Laura, I think you've been looking at artwork produced by military and veteran communities. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, um, a few years ago, I secured some funding from the British International Studies Association through their early career grant scheme to explore the, the artwork of US service personnel and veterans in the context of recent controversial wars, so Afghanistan and Iraq. And while I'm trying to build that project out now, currently to incorporate um, Iraqi and Afghan artists and, and other much more diverse um, voices, the reason that I started the project in the first place was that while international relations has, has analyzed war, has analyzed art, has analyzed military and veterans, very little attention or limited attention certainly has been given to how these three intersect in military and veteran artwork. Um, and this is important because this art is, is, is shaped by and in turn shapes experiences of war. So what I wanted to do through this project is, is contribute to that, that sort of underanalyzed research area by kind of posing a couple of questions and those sort of centered around what can explorations of military and veteran artwork reveal about war and its effects? And then what does this art tell us about how war is felt in, in everyday life? Um, then, you know, how does war leave its mark on, on bodies through art? And those bodies could be military, non-military, militarized, indeed it could be all three at once. Um, and then does this artwork support and or disrupt practices of meaning making and sense-making about the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. And what I tried to do to, to, to address those questions was I, I looked at seemingly both, both public and private endeavors just to explore the multiple ways in which the art of war is enacted, felt and experienced. So it therefore took Creative Forces, which is a military healing arts program, providing creative arts therapies for US trips, veterans and families dealing with traumatic brain injuries, and this is actually a partnership of the National Endowment for the Arts, the Departments of Defence and Veterans Affairs. And then it also took, in terms of more private um, endeavours, uh, Combat Paper. So Combat Paper is an organisation established by veterans that transforms military uniforms into paper and subsequently works of art. Um, so what I wanted to do by examining these kind of different sites and the different ways in which art engages or is engaged after war, um, was to complicate that sort of easy public-private divide that we often see, certainly in international relations, and then reveal this, the complexities and the messy actualities of everyday life after war and of war. Um, so what I did to try and do that was I brought um, together aesthetics, effect, and discomfort um, to try and provide critical insights into war, security, and military bodies and experiences. Um, and I, I had a research trip in the US um, where I went to the first ever National Veterans Art Museum um, Triennial and Veteran Art Summit 
uh, back in May 2019 and I conducted some interviews with military and veteran artists and also program coordinators including creative forces program coordinators um, and I was able to attend um, a huge array of exhibitions and I also was able to engage in paper making itself in various um, stages. Uh, so that has been truly, truly fascinating. So this has involved these, the kind of ethnographic inquiry. It's involved participant in some ways, unexpectedly observation and also non-participant observation coupled with these interviews and all these kind of photographs of these fascinating practices. Um, but what has been most important out of all of this is the, the connections and the relationships that I have built up with this, this network of military and veteran artists and, and how they are seeking to potentially disrupt and unsettle the, the, the stories that we tell about these wars and the stories that are perpetuated about these wars. Um, some of the most intriguing work was work that was in collaboration with uh, Iraqi artists um, and um, that was with Iraq veterans. So I find that work highly subversive, highly effective, um, highly potent in terms of what it does. That's really interesting, Laura. I'm reminded again of some conversations at our recent workshop with film, theatre and documentary makers. One or two of the people involved I were either themselves former serving soldiers or military partners, and they talked a lot about the discomfort of seeing their roles represented on stage and screen in ways which they didn't recognize, ways which felt inauthentic. They talked, for example, about the shorthand of PTSD to express all forms of trauma that a soldier might experience um, or all forms of response to the aftermath and to the going home process. But other 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 things, too, that they, they found deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And what you just said speaks to a really, really interesting and ambitious part of the Visualising War project, this idea that we see narratives of it as interventions narratives that don't just reflect reality but shape reality and have the potential to shape reality for the better to mitigate against and perhaps even prevent future armed conflict. Based on that I have a question for Ken as well because one, one of the things that I'm quite interested in now is Ken what is your what kind of methods methodology have you been using in your research so far and can you tell us a bit about how you might envisage bringing that kind of methodology, the psychological methodology, to bear on the kinds of narratives we're, we're talking about? So, because now we all have access, so to speak, to the material that, that Laura uh, was describing here. And I'm really curious to hear how a kind of psychological angle uh, from your perspective might play out here. Thanks. Yeah, I was... Let me let me use two very different kind of examples, actually. Um, so so uh, while Laura was talking about some of the work that she's been doing, I was reflecting upon the importance of of also capturing the yeah the the, the bystanders, but also the displaced persons who who kind of come out of conflict. And you know historically, uh, perhaps powerful nations tend to think about immigrants, but actually from war zones those immigrants are often actually displaced persons and, uh, and, and start off uh, as displaced by conflict. And, and one of the amazing opportunities that I had was to engage in some, uh, I guess, sort of social science research capabilities to engage in a, in a project in uh, northern Iraq where the, the questions we were asking actually were for, for a, a community group working there, trying to work out how best to support displaced persons. So 
the questions that we were kind of really asking were about how they wanted to see their future identity play out. Uh, and so we were working particularly with Christian communities. And I, I think it's interesting, for example, that many people see Iraq as fundamentally a, a sort of a, a Muslim country, which of course in, in many ways it is. But historically, Northern Iraq particularly is very much a, a Christian place uh, and one of the very earliest places in which Christianity spread out. Uh, and, and so there are, there are interestingly, you know, there are, there are temples and churches there that date to 300 AD and so forth, which you can still see. So, so those kind of artifacts are there and it makes you realize just how strong that, that historical connection is to that place. And so for Christian displaced persons, one of the really fascinating identity issues is that they feel that's their country as a Christian, just as much as a Muslim would see that being their country. Um, and so the, the question becomes post-conflict, do they want to return to the villages and to the places that they were displaced from? You know, so really we, we found sort of, I guess, three three ways of thinking about people's experience about that and how they wanted that to play out. You know, some some were so, uh, I guess, disconnected from from place due to the conflict that their their preference would be to, to leave, to emigrate to, to another country and to try and create a new life in a new place. Some, some were happy to remain in the places they'd been displaced to. So they'd found a new home with other, with other villages also in Iraq and, and they'd found new, new neighbors and new villages that they could call home and so that they would be happy to settle in those places. And there were others who really wanted to go back and rebuild their villages um, to, because they felt a sense of family and historical connections to those villages, which, I mean, as an Australian, I mean, the European history of Australia is very short. The, of course, the, there's a long-term history in Australia, very much long-term history in Australia. But as, as a European uh, by background, I mean, the European history of Australia is very short um, in, in the you know, range of hundreds of years. So to have people who are able to trace their connections back thousands of years in a place, I mean, that thousands and thousands of year connection, even for a, for a UK audience is kind of uh, quite something. So I think that was interesting as well, that they felt that they belonged, they belonged there with a sense of collective connection uh, going back, you know, perhaps 2000 years or longer. Some, for example, the, the identity was not just Christian, but Assyrian. So they saw themselves as Christian Assyrians and traced their, their identity back 4000 years, you know what I mean? So, so, so I think their identity issues in a place like that, that we can't even really uh, grapple with directly, um, that I think are very interesting. So, so I think there's a number of ways in which we can use kind of psychological methods, I guess, to try and help understand people's experience in that kind of context. In, in, in a very different way, uh, we can use kind of little experimental methods to help explore the, these kind of psychological ideas. So one of the things that struck me as interesting a few years ago was the way in which uh, a, a similar story, a similar war story could be seen as, as really turned on its head if one changed the perspective as to which side of the conflict one, you know, kind of connected with, right? So um, <clears throat> one person's terror uh, terrorist is another person's freedom fighter and, and so forth. And so one of the things we thought about doing and we did a little pilot study was to see if we could take historical narratives and either pair them or, or transform them in some way to make them interpretable 
from either perspective, right? So we wanted to see if we could shift people's view uh, about that conflict, even perhaps a familiar conflict, but by shifting their view on that familiar conflict to then see whether that would impact upon how they might see something else contemporarily, you know, whether that changed their view of immigration or changed their view of um, the, the role of conflict in various ways. The problem is that we don't, uh, I don't have the kind of historical sophistication to be able to do that. So, so I, what, what, what I kind of have, you know, in a sense, bringing to play there is a sort of a, an experimental method in which we might present people with variations on stories in a systematic kind of a way, and then see how that impacts upon the way people respond to those stories uh, and, and to other narratives. But what, what I kind of need from the, from the broader team is that historical sophistication to be able to, to find the, the nuances in the story that allows us to flip the, the perspective on the story. And, uh, and, and so, so for me, that's very exciting is, is to bring together uh, those methods, but with a more sophisticated understanding of the content to allow that uh, to have a bit more validity, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's great, Ken. And uh, I think what, one of the things that is uh, is really interesting about what you were just saying as, as a classicist is the way in which um, these ancient identities that go back to antiquity, they have their roots in antiquity, and are of course, propagated through stories, you know, uh, and traditions, how they play such a crucial part in exactly what we're interested in the project and what both you and Laura are working on in, in different ways, which is the question of post-conflict and, uh, you know, what do you do with this conflict and um, how do you handle it? Um, but also, how do you deal with the practicalities about who lives where and how do you resolve all these uh, all these tensions? So, I mean, this is a great way of sort of bringing all the different elements uh, together here. I think Laura wanted to come in as well. Yeah, I think there's also something really interesting about this notion of post post conflict or post traumatic, as we were talking about earlier as well, because it sort of impinges a temporality upon this, which often isn't very helpful, right? It's 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 reductive at times, and it it leads us into also potentially reductive representations or visualizations of war ourselves, I, I think that that holds a lot of power, right, as well, in terms of the power relations that are embedded in that and the political effects that that has, um, both for political subjects and indeed the kind of worlds in which they inhabit. So I think what I would, I would sort of caution is that, you know, with that temporality, it imposes those kind of political effects and it imposes those power relations on that and how we how we even visualize this ourselves because of course in this project we are visualizing war um, right and that that is always subjective um and that also isn't benign or, or neutral we're coming from certain kinds of perspective background and so on and that absolutely shapes uh how we engage with this also so i think what's key here is us actually talking about how these are ongoing and these are often hugely um, fluid and, and kind of amorphous in terms of their, this whole notion of beginnings or endings and so on. If we, if we talk to veteran artists, for example, who are dealing with trauma and who are potentially reliving that trauma at various moments, this is not post-traumatic. This is 
the here and now and this is there every day very much so so I think that's also something for us to bear in mind yes and I think the project is quite interested in looking at one specific thing which is how do we what what do we think victory or success or closure looks like because of course that changes radically in particular as drone warfare as cyber warfare and and so on come into play more and more but even without those factors we've been handed down by posterity all sorts of images of victory and closure of soldiers going home and that leads us to forget the people who live in the war zone day in day out uh, we're recording this in the week which marked the uh the, the anniversary of the 2003 invasion of iraq uh, and of course we as westerners tend to focus on that but of course iraq had been suffering from conflict long before and has continued to suffer from conflict long after so there has been no end in a sense and no end certainly to to the suffering and to the experience of loss and so on of people who've been displaced by that in, in a coming podcast, we're going to be interviewing an Iraqi artist who's now based in Oxford, who will talk about the fact that her entire 28 years of life has been dominated by conflict, even when she left Iraq. Um, so your, your point there, Laura, about how we understand closure, how we understand uh, um, timings post um, a, a conflict and so on is, is a really important one. And Ken, just to come back to a couple of the things that you were saying, your answers there just reminded us of the importance of deep history, how deep history really continues to resonate in the modern day, in people's sense of identity and in pe how people think and feel and behave. And I loved your example of flipping war stories. In fact, I do some training for British Armed Forces and one of the things I do is flip war stories. So I get them to look at Roman Britain from the perspective of Romans and but they are themselves British of course and get them to think about the different ways in which outsiders are explaining them or were explaining them um, imagining them visualizing them visualizing their conquest and so on and and so the flipping of war stories has has a really interesting um, pragmatic application potentially um, in in all sorts of different ways I think that brings me on to uh, the fact that the Visualising War project is involving lots of academics ourselves and, as we said, colleagues from art history, from film studies, um, uh, from history, modern and medieval and, and classics, um, and, and many other colleagues from international relations and so on. Uh, but we're also engaging very much, as we've said, with theatre and film and documentary makers, with journalists, with artists, with peace activists, with soldiers, with clinical psychologists, veterans charities, with in conversation with museum curators um, and also uh, war game designers. Um, and we're going to be inviting some of these people onto our um, podcast in upcoming episodes to talk to us about the war stories which they come across or which they themselves help to tell. Um, and I think, Laura, I wanted to ask you, who are you particularly excited to get on this podcast and why? Oh, well, I think international relations is one of those disciplines that's usually really late to the party when it comes to big, important questions and key debates. So, yes, it's really important that we go to other disciplines, absolutely, um, who have long been doing this work. Um, and my work has always been interdisciplinary for that very reason. Um, but as much as I have so much to learn and gain from the really rich work of all scholars from other disciplines like classics, cultural studies, sociology, psychology, I also have so much to learn and gain from practitioners, so artists, writers, filmmakers, curators, and so on. And I already have tried to, to do so in my, in my own work. 
So for, for some time now, what we've seen is that international relations has really called for real engagement with the visual, visualization, visualizing. But personally, I feel we have some way to go in an actual collaborative partnership with these practitioners and indeed the knowledge or, or knowledges, right, that they can engender. So what I wanna say here is that that's not a privileging of one form of knowledge over another, but, but rather this is about us entering into a conversation that is, is provoking, that is stimulating, that is potentially discomforting around difficult questions and indeed our potential complicity in, in how war comes to be shaped, enacted, understood and felt in the everyday. And that is really, and it is bodily marked and felt in the everyday. So I suppose what, what I find so, so intriguing about this project is that we are getting the opportunity to bring these various contribu contributors together to have thought provoking conversations that expand and broaden our understandings of what war is, what it constitutes, and indeed how it is constituted and the effects and traces it leaves so that we can some way account for the people and practices, uh, the subjects and sites that have been erased or silenced in the visualizing of war. So I suppose I'm not explicitly stating this particular person is, is someone that I'm excited to speak to or hear from, but I certainly am excited to potentially hear from those that we do not usually hear from. Um, and that, as I said, in that visualizing of war, that can come to the fore. And uh, Ken, do you have uh, any thoughts about um, how we can use uh, this podcast series in order to sort of take the project forward and um, also kind of keep linking what we are doing, what you know, all of us are doing also with the psychological perspective? What are opportunities that you see in the, um, uh, in the podcast series in particular? Well, so I, I think there's there's kind of two broad areas that I'm thinking of. One is that, um, I mean, in, in my own experience as a consumer of, of media, it's like films and, you know, those kinds of narratives. Uh, and, and as a, but as a psychologist observing those things, I've made a number of assumptions about what the filmmakers were trying to do, what the storytellers were trying to do with that narrative. Uh, and so for me, there'll be some fascination to actually hear from such people, you know, what, what, what were they trying to actually achieve? And does that match up with my assumptions? Uh, you know, so, so I think that's really interesting just to get that perspective. Uh, and then in an entirely different kind of direction, one of the things I'm really conscious of was some recent controversial discussion on Twitter actually about, about uh, academic involvement in war zones. And in particular with regard to Syria, um, and then that, um, that in a sense, exploring a number of things to do with the Syrian conflict, uh, we, we as academics engage local people on the ground to help us to explore these various things. But we then actually, there's a risk that we, we then um, ignore the voices of those people who've been engaged in that research with us. So for me, actually, is reading that, that um, the, those kind of Twitter comments and, and raising those questions suggested for me that, in fact, you know, I think one of the things that's in, in the spirit of, of this uh, project and of the podcast uh, is, is, in fact, to try and give some voice, perhaps, to some of those people who have been involved in research uh, in Syria, in Afghanistan and so forth, 
um, involved in those research processes and make sure that they also have a voice um, in, and, and they're able to tell those stories from, from their perspectives as well. So that's something I think uh, I would love to see. I couldn't agree more, Ken. I saw that debate on Twitter blowing up as well. And absolutely, the the importance not to intervene as mediators always um, and to let those voices speak and, and tell their story is, is really, really important. We have a really exciting lineup of guests booked in actually for upcoming podcasts. So for example, we have got Lady Lucy French who runs the Never Such Innocence Project. We have someone who directs the Institute of War and Peace Reporting. We have a range of artists coming along to talk to us, the editors of Ancient Warfare magazine and a, a number of other academics all lined up. Many more to come. And if you listeners out there have any suggestions of people you would like to hear from, please do let us know. You can find all our contact details on the project website. Our aim really is to give you an opportunity to dive deeper and find out more about how different kinds of war stories work in all sorts of different media and from all sorts of different periods and places and to explore how they shape the ways that we think and feel and behave. So all that's left to say is thank you very much for joining us and uh, we, we hope we've given you a good uh, flavour of uh, what we're doing in our project and that you've enjoyed as much as we have hearing from our special guests uh, Ken and uh, Laura. Um, next time, we will be talking with Lady Lucy French, whom Alice just mentioned about her project, Never Such Innocence, which gives nine to 18 year olds the opportunity to express their experiences of conflict through poetry, song, art and speech making. If you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that also helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just look for us uh, under the address Visualizing War. You can also check out our website, which you can get to from the University of St. Andrews School of Classics webpage. And you can get in touch with us directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young of NMT Automatics and the show was mixed by Zofia Guettin. See you next time.